This is available as a podcast and a webinar. What? This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome uh, to Mediation Nuts, Bolts, and Ethics Part 2. Uh, we, we did Part 1 on May 9, and, and we were only intending it to be a one-parter, but we had such a great discussion and such great scenarios that we ran out of time. And I, and I didn't want to waste either the discussion or the scenarios, so I did ask our three presenters, uh, Professor Art Hinshaw, Susan Bullfinch, and Kristen Carmichael, if they would graciously agree to come back f to finish the scenarios, and they said yes. And so uh, you can find the, pack, uh, the packet for part one in Judicial Resources. It was May 9th. And we do have a separate packet um, for part two uh, that's also in Judicial Resources. Uh, the, as always, the COJET certificates are at the back of the pack. And with all that, uh, as always, um, if you have a question, you can put it in the chat box. You can turn on your camera or turn on your microphone, and uh, we will call on you. Um, if, if it's in the chat box, I'll, I'll be monitoring the chat box. Um, and I'll turn it over to our presenters. All right. Thanks so much, Charles. It's good to see um, some good friends on the line here. And this is a part two. So we're going to do just a, a really um, quick review uh, of some of the things that we talked about last time. So that we had some uh, possibilities of things that were edits to be made. And if you were with us the first time, you remember that we went through and talked about um, various different edits and what they would be. And uh, so the edit to the mediation agreement that we were talking about, or at least one of them, Charles, if you would turn the page, please. We added, ta-da, electronic payments onto our mediation agreement. So you can, this is the updated form itself. Uh, and you can see this right there next to bank check. And of course, you want to put whatever um, the email, not email address, but the the web page and URL, those sorts of things in the blanks there. Um, so one good change uh, then to the mediation outcome notice, here's the, here's the new copy of the form. And Charles, if you'll go to the next page, we did not change this. We were discussing the six month requirement. Remember that if the terms of the deal extend past six months, um, the case is just gonna get dismissed with prejudice at the end of six months. And so um, essentially, you know, some people were saying, why does it have to be six months? Can't it be something else? Where did six months come from? And because of court rules, it has to, it sounds like it needs to stay um, at six months. Um, let me just ask, Susan, is that your recollection as well on the six months issue? Yes, I don't think anything has changed, but I believe that is something that, do we want to have a discussion on that? I, I was think wondering if you have any input. Uh, we did it pretty much in full last time. Um, Christina, is there something that you want to add to this? I saw that your mic is on. No? Nope. Okay, so we didn't change that. So we're still at the six months. And just remember that if your uh, settlement agreement is going to go longer than six months, usually, and this is usually in debt collection type cases, professional plaintiffs, um, that then they will want to um, use the contingent settlement um, box, which you see right here, that they've actually reached an agreement and we got to get the paperwork in. At least it signals to the court to expect a settlement and hopefully we'll be able to um, continue with better data collection related to mediation. Okay, Charles, now it's time for the next one. Sorry for the sort of fake out. Um, we and did... Art, just so you know, I have the slides. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, okay, well, there you go. That, thanks so much, I didn't realize that. So um, we did make one change though. Uh, we added to the outcome notice one more box at the bottom for a stipulated request to continue or to reconvene, depending on how you wanna talk about it. Um, and then you just have to put the reason, you know, because they need more information, because they're trying to negotiate, whatever um, it might be. So that was a good suggestion um, from the mediation crew here that uh, got implemented. And then um, we talked about the Disclosure and Confidentiality Agreement, which is the, sign, the document that you sign um, at the beginning. And we got rid of the language related to 
basically destroying the notes that people take. Um, and I thank uh, everybody involved. I've been working on this for a long time. And um, I can't remember the person who came up with the suggestion this go around, but it worked this time. So thank you so much for making it happen. It's just and during the pandemic, what are you gonna do, um, right? You're gonna, I want everybody after this program to destroy their notes. What? Right. So um, go to the next page because we have a suggestion change. So there was um, some discussion about, well, what do we mean it's confidential? Does, you know, I've had to explain to parties that, you know, just now that we talk about the evidence doesn't mean that that's now not confidential or that it's now confidential and can't be used in court. And um, so we, as a group, last time thought, oh, it would be good to put something in there. So after the meeting, I said to myself, why don't I take a look and see what the statute says? And there's language specifically on this in the statute. So this is my suggestion that I sent to Taj, um, like within a week of our last meeting, that we just put this language into um, the document the document itself evidence that exists independently of the mediation even if used in connection with the mediation is still subject to service of process or subpoena just to be clear um and then uh susan is there anything that you want to add to that before we get to the round table um no not at this point i did want to say to everybody that's on the call um when you first got wind that we were doing the part two remember that we have sent or you should have copies of this um arizona mediation confidentiality statute that arts just talked about as well as the model standards of conduct for mediators right we sent that um to everybody or that it was the materials for this particular program Correct. um and I think this suggested change, um, is it your understanding it is going to be um, added or this is our suggestion? And this, this is just a suggestion. I don't know that um, Taj and Charles or whoever changes these things has had time to process it yet, or to, to actually think about it. But this is the, this is the language that I sent to um, Taj. So I guess we could ask, we could ask our colleagues here do you think this does the trick? Do you want to have something else? Yes, anybody want to weigh in? Um, I always count to five Mississippis, so I'm at two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. Four. Oh, Deborah. It's a good change. I just want to clarify for my own. Uh, so if during the mediation, the person disclosed something that was unknown to the other party, that that party eventually, if they go to a trial, want to request that to be brought up to the trial, that's too, I mean, even though it was reviewed during the mediation, it is still able to be, um, you know, um, access if this goes to a trial afterwards, you know, some information that existed there, but it was only disclosed during the mediation. Is this still, they cannot claim, oh, this was, I just said that in the mediation, so you cannot use it. It's only the discussions they have. I usually explain there's only the, you know, what we're talking there, your willingness to negotiate, you know, is that correct? I just want to clarify. Um, that is correct. So, Right. Um, let's say that there is a document that um, that uh, Charles has in his possession that I haven't yet seen, and he pulls it out and throws it on the table and says, "This is the document that shows the smoking gun." Da 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 da. And it's a document. He has it. Maybe I just didn't know about it. I could request it. You know, Charles could still use it um, in in the case going forward. Um, so I think your explanation is a good one that, you know, things that are already there related to the case are still usable uh, at trial. Thanks, Deborah, And thanks for your comment, Charles, as well. All right. It sounds like we have a person who's on an elevator or something like that or backing up in their car. 
Um, if you could turn your uh, mute your phone, that would be great. Um, thank you very much. And now it's time for our mediator roundtable. Um, and so I think, um, Susan, were you going to take this first one, or was this? Yeah, this one? I I think so. So the mediator roundtable for everybody that's new to some of these programs that we do, um, usually in the summer, um, this is really an opportunity for us as mediators. Uh, to talk about any concerns that we have. In the past, you know, these have been very lively. Now that we're doing it on Zoom, it's a little different. We have some topics that we can talk about our, ourselves, but I also, before we got started, wanted to open it up to all of you that are on the call, if there's anything that you'd like to bring up, something that you like, a concern, a question, a... Uh, this is your time to chime in, so to speak. So I don't know if I'm going to wait for the five Mississippis, but I might. If anybody had a question that they wanted to raise um, with us today. I have a question. Um, I recently had a case where it was a collection and the collection company had their attorney there and the defendant had sent in paperwork and said, I am not going to be there, but so-and-so attorney is going to be there to represent me. Do we still go on with the mediation or do we set that for a pretrial hearing? Are you saying the defendant had an attorney and the plaintiff had, so there were two attorneys there? Is that what yeah. I understand? Yeah, the plaintiff had submitted a note that said, I'm blind, I can't make it, but I'm sending an attorney to represent me. Okay, that's a plaintiff. And then the defendant was there themselves in, in person, I mean, on the phone? Well, the plaintiff was an attorney because he re was representing a collection company. Right. That um, sometimes happens. I uh, My personal answer to you is if uh, there is authority, if they have waived the uh, appearance for the party to appear, then I think you can go ahead with the mediation. Or do you have a different answer? Yeah, I, no, I think that's correct. So the, the pronoun of they means the court. Uh, typically what happens, right, is that um, the party asks the court to waive the um, requirement of the appearance of the real party in interest. And um, we know that for self-represented litigants, courts will do things that are, you know, a little, give them some leeway back and forth. Um, but I've been in situations where um, there are some courts that just say, if they're on the phone, go for it, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not officially, um, there, there wasn't a motion that was made or anything like this. I mean, this attorney might not have even made an entry of appearance. Um, and so probably the first thing that you would want to do is when you got this person on the phone, say you need to have an entry of appearance if you're going to appear in this case for this uh, party. And then, I mean, I'd talk to the other side and just say, are you okay talking with attorney so-and-so? And typically, debt collection companies, they want to get the deal done. And so they'll say yes. Um, and so I would say that that's okay, Libby. That looked good to me. So I, that, that's my long way of saying, yes, I agree with you, Susan. I'm sorry. <laughs> Is there a concern that you had that you brought this up or you weren't quite sure about procedure? Well, um, I went ahead and let the mediation go through, but after okay. one of the clerks from one of the other courts, we were talking about it, and she said that when there's two attorneys, they don't do the mediation. They set it for pre-trial. So I was wondering if I was wrong in letting it happen because they resolved it. So. Oh, well, I don't know. I'd say of the four, Susan, of the four courts in Northeast, this is Ken, only McDowell Mountain requires pre-conference trial if there are two attorneys involved. All three other courts allow, uh, if there are two attorneys involved, uh, the mediation to go through. 
So it was only one court that made that decision to not mediate when there are two attorneys involved. Right. So Ken is saying that that's a court by court consideration. Um, here's yeah. the one thing that I think is um, good for us as mediators. Um, Sometimes we can make a mistake and let this one go through. For instance, in this court, they apparently, or at least that one court had a, so it was McDowell Mountain, maybe. Um, right. But even if you got the deal, I don't think the court is going to basically undo the deal. Um, they'll just say, you know what, you, just so you know, these are the rules. <laughs> but if you have the parties there and you're able to resolve it, uh, that would seem that that would be a win-win. <laughs> Kristen, did you have something to add? No. Um, so with regards, if there's nothing else on the mediator roundtable, and you can also use the chat um, feature as well. One of the things we didn't get to last time that I think Charles, you wanted us to address was, um, I'm assuming, was the issue of confidentiality. And I'm going to ask, have there been any concerns from anybody with regards to maintaining confidentiality when doing telephonic mediation? Oh, am I hearing that as a no? So um, when the three Deborah. of us were talking. Deborah oh, Gamalina, hand up. The one thing that I do learn, because I realize sometimes people don't say there's people around actually listening. So now actually I make the point, is there anyone in the room with you right now? I just need to know their name, so they are assigned. So I, I'm, a lot of times, if that is, I thought they were by themselves. They went to ask that, oh yeah, my cousin is here, or my whatever, whatever is here. So I make the point to ask now. So it makes it very clear, so everybody, that's there at least agree to the confidentiality so that's one thing that i i think that's uh excellent in fact i think some of us have um are doing the same thing I remember when we were talking before about this particular question, I've done mediation where there's somebody in the background, uh, they're making, say, an opening statement, one of the parts, and then I hear some sounds and I ask the same questions. Is there somebody else with you? Do you have a spouse or a friend or somebody who's there with you now? And could I have their name? And again, just to emphasize that this is a confidential process. Uh, I think that's something excellent to keep in mind. Um, can I add one thing on that? Is it, let's say the cousin is there and the other side says, I'm okay with the cousin being there. Um, then do make sure that that cousin uh, agrees to the mediation uh, confidentiality agreement form. Um, so sign on that person's behalf as you would for anybody else. Um, and you know, verbally get the acknowledgement um, from this individual. But let me ask you, Susan, so let's say the cousin says, okay, I'm not, okay, I'll leave the room, and then you hear, <laughs> whisper, whisper, oh, whisper, that, whisper. <laughs> oh, whisper, okay, thank you, Art, for that, whisper, whisper. Well, then they really haven't left the room, have they? Yeah, what do you do? Uh, well, I think you can emphasize, I mean, maybe Deborah has a different uh, response, but I think you can say, didn't we reach an agreement? Is, your, is there a reason that um, your um, cousin is still there, that your friend is still there? How can we address that? Because really, if they agree to leave, they should leave. And if they don't, there must be something underlying that. Let me ask, has anybody had a situation where this has happened, where somebody says, okay, I'll leave the room, and then somehow they magically reappear? They clearly have not left the room. I, I, I just give another, I always try to create the pre, the contest when I usually say, when I give that, that if there's anyone else in the room, I said, this is a good faith conversation. So I'm expecting, so I'm trying to raise the bar for everybody, at least to remind them to be their best. So I don't know, you know, 
but I never had that happen that someone stayed. But I think just by also remind them that this is a good place that they want the same thing toward then that they might, you know, be less like to. Right. Yeah, and just yeah, not with respect to mediators, but uh, you know, just in court proceedings, you know, the problem with confidentiality is everyone has a smartphone and they have a record button on their smartphone, and so you can't control what somebody is doing off screen. Um, and yeah, and, and I've had people who will not leave the room and, and to, to the detriment of other parties there. So. Uh, and this is stuff we're just going to have to get better with because virtual is going to be around for a while. Mm -hmm. I will say um, it's a bit, so I handle mostly private mediations. It's a bit easier when there is video because you can actually have people show you their room. I've had clients who didn't trust each other. So at the beginning of the meeting, they would show themselves putting their phone outside the door and then closing the door with their phone outside of the room. Uh, but I have had clients where they have stayed when they said they weren't going to or they were in a public place. That's the other big issue is people taking mediation calls. My favorite was from Walmart or in an Uber um, and just establishing that we cannot continue the session right now if you in fact are not in a private space where confidentiality confidentiality can't be withheld. Oh, good point. Good point. That's the problem. Most people want to take their meeting over their phone from anywhere. And so it's just being conscious of that. I've had clients try and walk through Walmart with their video on while we're having a meeting or sit in an Uber. And so we just had a conversation about how it's not, there is no confidentiality in the process and we're lacking that if you're in a public space. Yeah, but a good point because that could happen to us on the phone um, mm -hmm. doing a lot of these justice court as well as the Zoom. So on that, Kristen, would you like to talk, one of the questions that we have on the Mediator Roundtable is talking about breaking impasse um, and maybe some thoughts you have about building rapport. Sure. Um, one thing that I'll start with with rapport is I think that a lot of people have um, difficulty switching to virtual mediation because how do you build rapport that you could build with people within a setting that is the court? Let that be if you have 45 minutes to mediate or the luxury that I have, which is hours to mediate, still building that rapport with people. So has anyone had any kind of ways that they've tried to build rapport and trust with individuals um, now that you're on, you're not online, you're on the phone? I personally use humor. Humor is a great one. Unless, of course, that. people don't appreciate your dad jokes and then it just kind of falls flat, but. <laughs> I, I know you're directing that at me, Kristen. So, um... Any other ones? Um, some other ways to do it are to open it up with a bit more, maybe some personal components. So I think a lot of mediators, particularly when you're in person, you kind of walk in, you just jump into your opening statement. Having a bit of conversation at the beginning can build rapport with people, even if it's just simply about how their day was or how they're feeling about the mediation, you know, coming into the mediation. I think that a lot of us Sometimes want to avoid the emotion that's associated with mediation, especially if we're dealing with a case that's not very emotion based. So, for example, debt collection. Um, but it can help build rapport and trust with the participants for mediation if you are building some kind of conversation with them, particularly when they can't see you and you're on telephonic. So having some form of conversation with them before you jump right into your opening statement and just I think being yourself. Um, I am the metaphor person. I use so many metaphors in mediation that sometimes I think it drives my clients crazy. But I say that from the beginning. I'm like, fair warning, there's going to be a lot of metaphors and also using some humor. It just helps them get to know you and it's less robotic. Another way via telephonic or online is 
just having more inflection and tone in your voice. So not being monotone, um, it can definitely help bring some rapport between you and your participants if they know that they're talking to a human being instead of something that's more like a robot. Any other ideas anyone has for rapport? I, I just want something just to add even to, because even on the debt collections, I'm, I'm questioning actually how to defend in those actual emotional moments. There's I do very, there's a lot of shame to be there. So what I do even for the case study, even if the, the other side is there, I just say, this is really just a conversation. I really, and you, the person can actually feel on there, oh, thanks for, I mean, they're like, do this. Oh, thank you. They're like, they got from that, you know, very, instead of me starting the whole process by just saying, hey, before we started, just let you know, we understand everybody, you know, a little more of humanity and people really appreciate that. Um, even in a debt collection, because for the, the defendant, those are very emotional times and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of pressure on that. Yeah, absolutely. Showing empathy is a huge way to build rapport. Um, just being empathetic for everything that everyone's going through. Um, and I that can be particularly challenging for people, especially when there's a lot of conflict. But just understanding that, you know, when people are coming to mediation, they're not usually their best selves. So they're not in their best place. And so being empathetic for how they're feeling, but also how they might be reacting to being put in that sort of situation. So right. how about impasse? When you're doing telephonic mediation, what kind of strategies do you use to break impasse? This is Ken Diamond again. Uh, if you've read your the, two, the plaintiff and the defendant correctly, you can use the King Solomon approach. <laughs> okay, look, we've obviously reached an impasse um, why don't we just set this for trial? The one that doesn't want to go to trial will usually end up uh, starting to negotiate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also refer to that as just reality checking. Like, okay, so you're telling me there's no way to reach an agreement. So the next reality step is we're going to trial. Is that what we want to do? can also use objective criteria. Um, that can be really helpful, particularly when people are at an impasse where they're not focused on what the law says or the objective criteria that's at play. Instead, they're focused more on their emotions. Um, one key element of that, though, is acknowledging their emotions, because sometimes if you skip right over them and go to objective criteria, they're not going to be able to focus on the objective criteria because they are so stuck in the emotional part of their brain that it's just not physical for the physically possible for them to get to the logical things of objective criteria. Any other impasse strategies? I have one that I like to talk about, and that's the value of today. Um, you know, if we get to a point where we're really close, to just say, is it really worth three hundred dollars? you know, whatever the amount is, um, to have to go through all of these things down the road that you're going to have to do. Um, so what is the value of today? They're here, you're here, you can be done, you don't have to spend the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the emotional toll, not time away from work, those sorts of things. Um, and in those conversations, I often find that people are like, it is kind of silly that you know, we're, our, we're we can't get a deal because we're dealing with a very small percentage of the overall debt or something along those lines. Um, they'll be able to make that jump then. Not always, but many times. Couple other options, um, just taking a break, giving people the opportunity to have a break. Um, my favorite, which is a little unorthodox, but when people are at impasse because they are so heavily in conflict, so um, clients that just can't seem to get out of that fight, flight, or flee, you know, moment of their brain or freeze, um, 
kind of switching people out of the limbic part of their brain into the thoughtful part of your brain is just throwing them off a little bit. So I've been known to, um, in my office, I have a window that sits behind the clients and I look out and I'll say, oh my gosh, was that a hot air balloon? And they just look and they look around and then all of a sudden they're in their logical part of their brain. So kind of snapping people out of that limbic part of their brain uh, that could be a break. That could also just be, you know, a humor that could be, you know, making them do something like, hey, let's just do a walk around the table and sit back down. It might seem silly, but psychologically it can really help them get past their place of impasse, particularly if you know that impasse is caused by the fact that they're just not in the logical part of their brain and they're just kind of talking about things that aren't really productive and you've worked through a lot of those issues. So if you've worked past those and they still seem stuck, just doing something out of the ordinary that they don't expect can actually really be helpful. All right. Susan, back I'm gonna... to you in the round table. Yeah, I think gonna... these are great, these are great, great ideas um, and things that everybody can use. Um, I think that's a reason for caucus, but I love your ideas, Christian, uh, taking people to a different space and changing the, changing the structure for just maybe a few minutes can do a lot. Now I'm noticing um, in terms of time, we wanted to go into our ethical scenario. So if there's nothing else, I think um, Art, it might be time to do a review unless you have sure. some last comments on Roundtable. No, I'm, I'm good on that. So ethics, here we go. So some quick review. Um, in the materials for this program are the modeled standards of conduct for mediators. Um, and they're not codified or anything along those lines. Um, but they are likely to be uh, used because it's the strongest um, the strongest ethical rules that we have. And the standards can be categorized, and we talked about this time, focus on the mediator, focus on the process, or practice considerations themselves. Do remember that there are the three primary um, parts of mediation, the three keys, and they are self-determination, that's the parties get to determine what they're gonna do themselves. Impartiality, neutrality, right? Impartiality uh, essentially means that I'm gonna treat them the same. If I caucus with one, I'm gonna caucus with the other things along those lines. Neutrality is more along the lines of, I'm neutral as to the outcome. Doesn't matter to me if you settle for $50 or $5,000 or you don't settle at all, that sort of thing. Um, and then the third one is confidentiality. And uh, we talked a little bit about it before, but we've got a really good confidentiality statute um, in Arizona. So we've got some good coverage there. Um, so we thought we would finish up the scenarios. We renumbered them from last time, so this is, the first one for part two, and I'm gonna go through and read it so I need my reading glasses. Um, so you call for a brief break in a mediation during which you consult the court clerk about the enforceability of a deposit forfeiture clause that the plaintiff had signed. By the way, we picked this one because last time somebody wanted us to talk about some landlord-tenant issues. So this is why we're in a landlord-tenant case here. The clerk, a lawyer with 10 years of experience as the chief housing court clerk, informs you that most judges view such clauses as to be against public policy and are not enforceable. This clerk says state law is clear that all unused deposits are the property of and to be held into trust for the tenants and that landlord deductions, as well as other charges and penalties may only be made for provable actual damages suffered by the landlord. Of course, the tenant does not know any of this. So um, if you are the mediator in this case, how do you feel um, about the following? And you can see in our uh, slide here, we have five different things that we're gonna talk about um, real quick. So uh, in A, telling the defendant's representative in caucus, right? The defendant is who? That's the tenant. Um, about the likely non-enforceability of the forfeiture clause and encouraging them to make an offer more reflective, uh, excuse me, I have it backwards, the tenant is the plaintiff uh, in the case, telling the defendant's representative a caucus about the likely non-enforceability of the forfeiture clause and encouraging them to make an offer more reflective of the likely trial outcome. So we as mediators, is this something that, uh, what do you think about this? 
keep your mouth shut. Ken says, keep your mouth shut. Ken, why do you keep your mouth shut? Um, you don't provide legal advice, you don't provide legal information, and you don't testify at trial. Okay, I agree with the not testifying at trial. I also agree with not giving legal advice. Got to get my fingers in the right spot to get on the screen. Um, legal information, a little bit, I have a little bit of a different opinion uh, on that that we can get to. Um, but I saw a hand up, Deborah. Did you have your hand up too? Um, I was so well. I, I guess you you can Google online. You might be able to get access. I told the tenant, maybe you can get access to the to the law, and that's what he did. Um, right. I mean, I it was wrong, but I because in person I usually would have a copy that I think once you had mentioned, and I did have a copy of that on my thing if someone if the, the you know if they you know but I would I don't know if it was wrong or not but no I don't think that's wrong at all um so Ken's answer to A was keep your mouth shut in this particular instance um and then Deborah says well you know I've looked at the, the landlord tenant statutes and directed people to them because it's public information any other comments on A here yeah art Yes. You're asking a lay you're asking a lay person to interpret statutes by you know saying well I looked at this and yada 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 and here's a copy you're still asking a lay person to interpret statutes. Yes, and um, I don't feel that's the job of a mediator. All right, so this is this is this is a great uh, point for conversation. Um, so you have people who you know clearly the law is going to be impacting them, and by basic, I don't know if contract, but we're really as uh, justice court mediators, we are not supposed to tell them this is what the ruling is going to be, right? Uh, we are not to predict court outcomes. It's in our uh, mediation agreement itself that we are not going to do that, and so sometimes. We happen to know the law, and so how do we sort of not tell them what's going to happen, but sort of kind of dance around what everybody knows? For instance, in debt collection cases, in the answer it says, yes, I owe this debt. Well, we know that, that this is going to be a judgment on the pleadings really easily. Um, but here in this landlord-tenant case, right, telling the defendant what we just heard from the housing clerk, that is legal advice, right? Because we are giving, we're not only just making a court, a prediction of what the court's outcome is gonna be, we are putting facts to law. And I say this every time, but I have to say it again because it's such a good analogy. Um, it is, what is the what's an example of uh, legal information? It's sitting in the passenger seat of a car saying, look, the speed limit is 35. What's a good example of uh, engaging in the practice of law? Applying the law to the facts. Hey, slow down, you're speeding. That's the difference. And so um, I think it's absolutely fine if you have somebody there and you say, let's see what the Landlord-Tenant Act says, right? And so Deborah has had copies of it with her uh, in the past. I've had copies of it with me. Sometimes I direct people to the website uh, for it, which is, I mean, if you just Google Arizona landlord tenant law, there's a packet that the Department of Housing puts out. It's right there. Um, and even, you know, before the pandemic, we used to pull it up on the phone and just say, so this is what the statute says. Here you go. Take a read it and see what you do. Does that change your opinion any? Does that change your outcome? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I think this A is a thumbs down. Ken, I think you're right. Uh, we keep our mouths shut uh, in that regard. Um, Susan, is there anything you want to add on this? Uh, no, I think both of you have uh, good points. I have been, uh, like Deborah said, I have been at mediations where they have pulled, pulled out the statute from their phone and looked at it. But I think you have some other choices in here that people might uh, be interested in. Or oh, um, just look if you're going to go through the rest or, or not. I kind of 
I saw E there. I was wondering what your thoughts are of being completely transparent and telling both parties in joint session that you have consulted with the clerk and the clause is almost certainly not enforceable. What your thoughts would be on that? <laughs> All right, so somebody has their, uh, somebody who's calling in uh, hit their mute button by mistake and we started to hear a little bit of a conversation. That, so thanks for rehitting that. That was me. I'm sorry, it's Taj and I am pro timming downtown today and I was talking with the court manager in chambers and I apologize I didn't have you on mute. Sorry. I'm muting you now. Okay, no worries. Thanks. Nice to hear from you, Taj. Um, and when you watch the video, you'll get some of the stuff that we talked about um, later. Well, let's just go Absolutely. through the rest. Okay, so let's go through the rest of these. B, asking the plaintiff and caucus, have you consulted a lawyer or would you like to do so? Um, I don't know. I, all of us have probably done this at some time or another. My sense is that more often than not, this is not helpful um, conversation with parties because they usually have time to do that beforehand and they think that it's too expensive. Um, but, you know, I could be wrong. Um, Susan, have you had much luck with this kind of phraseology? Um, occasionally, I think what it does is it highlights if it's coming from the mediator and you're saying in caucus to somebody that maybe doesn't have as much information as as sophisticated, like Ken was talking about, um, saying to them, have you had a chance to talk to an attorney? Might just get them into the idea of, uh, you know, maybe that would be a good thing for them. Uh, you so might have to take the next step, which is, have you thought of talking to somebody who practices in the area of landlord-tenant law, you know, to be a little more but uh, no, I, uh, overall, I mean, just telling somebody have they consulted with it, but I think it could be a hint. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So I think that D is the same as A, right? That, that hint is kind of code. Hey, you've got a legal issue here. Maybe you want to investigate it. Um, but my experience is that most people don't have the time, the finances, or the will um, to do that. Um, this is interesting. See, talking, you know, you might think about talking with the housing clerk about this. The interesting thing here is that you're basically saying you should go talk with an expert, but typically these experts, uh, when they work for the court, are not going to give people legal advice either. <laughs> they might do it to you as the mediator to help you sort of understand where you are. Um, so that's also a little bit of a, uh, of a tough one uh, to do, or at least to, for it to be meaningful. Let's put it that way. It's kind of like, you know, when you've been on those, uh, you're making a call to like an insurance company and you get shuffled from this person to that person to the other person, you still don't get the answer. So we don't want to have that um, either. So I think we're done with this scenario. Um, let's go to the next one. Uh, okay, I'll take this, I'll read this, and then I'm going to ask you what you would do and um, how comfortable you would feel about this. You are a staff mediator in a local small claims court where mediations take place an hour before the scheduled court hearing. The plaintiff, an elderly widow named Mrs. Rosen, sues for a return of $1,000 allegedly loaned to a younger man, Mr. Schwartz. There is no written loan agreement. In mediation, when confronted with Mrs. Rosen's righteous anger, he quickly admits that he borrowed the money and now offers to repay the debt in full, half in cash immediately, the balance over two months. In caucus with the plaintiff to discuss the defendant's proposed payment plan, Mrs. Rosen now tells you that Mr. Schwartz is a scam artist who preys on vulnerable widows by taking them out to dinners, romancing them, and then borrowing money with no intention of paying it back. She has learned that he did this with four other women in her neighborhood who have not themselves sued and is continuing to do it with others. She then takes out a cell phone and calls one of these alleged victims who on the phone with you confirms that the same thing happened to her. 
conduct that, if proven, constitutes larceny. Despite all of this, Mrs. Rosen tells you that she wants to accept the offer and settle her case quietly. If this happens, the parties will sign an agreement and there will be no court hearing. What do you do as the mediator and how comfortable are you with what Mrs. Rosen has done? This is meaty. Or wants to do. Well, me personally, um, let the deal go. I mean, remind everybody, it is if failure to pay this mediation agreement agreement results in a stipulated or results in a judgment against the individual who didn't pay. Sure, and that would be um, standard one self-determination that we've been talking about. Uh, mediator should not undermine party self-determination. If this is something that she wants to do, she's thought about it, she apparently has information, and your thinking is if this is what she wants to do, write it up. Anybody else? But also remind the defendant that this is a legal contract that if he breaks, he gets a court judgment against him. Well, you would have to then introduce the concept of the stipulated judgment um, into no, the document. No, 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 no. The mediation agreement is stipulated. The result of the default on the mediation agreement is a judgment. Are you talking about the language in the outcome mediation agreement? That is that is correct. Okay, so you're saying that um, if he doesn't pay, she can bring a motion before the court to enforce this contract, right? And then she'll okay. write down everything that he has paid and what he's still owing. That is correct. Okay. Anybody else? How many of you um, think that there might be an issue here or have a concern because you may interpret this as being criminal, as there's a crime here? Does anybody go that far in their thinking? I think that may be five Mississippis. <laughs> so I, well, I, uh, I was thinking. Go ahead, Deborah. Or, uh, I did feel yeah, uncomfortable, that, but I, don't want, I cannot open the door to a whole, oh, this is criminal, I should report. I mean, I saw as a mediator, if we witness something that's obviously criminal, how, I mean, but then I, I don't know. It felt icky, but I don't know what I would have done. Of course, and that's why we do these hypotheticals because it's not always so clear. So one of the standards that we have is the quality of the process. That would be standard six. And one of those is if a mediation is being used to further criminal conduct, a mediator should take appropriate steps, including if necessary, uh, postponing, withdrawing from or terminating the mediation. So you'd have to be hard pressed in this, um, given these facts, uh, and that she already knows that this man has preyed on the widows, uh, maybe not writing it out uh, because this is what she wants to do. But if you were really, really concerned as a mediator about this, those would be some of your options. You might say, I don't feel comfortable with this. I think that you're being uh, scammed. I So obviously as a mediator, you can terminate mediations if you have personal reasons for that. But I think that would be an extreme move. I just wanted to highlight that. Art, Kristen, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, I think when it comes to this, um, 
we talk a lot about confidentiality as well. So what's being disclosed in mediation and as an exception, is it causing harm to other people? I think that's going to depend on the mediator if they feel that they should withdraw or, you know, if this does cause potential harm. I don't know if that's really, I would be interested or in your perspective on if financial harm constitutes as harm as an exception to confidentiality. Um, but it, it is a difficult place to be in the middle of, particularly if there is, from your perspective, a crime that's happening. It, the, the, the statute talks about threats of harm. So we don't have any threats that are being made here. Um, it looks like there might be potential bad conduct. Um, there might be potential threats down the line, but there certainly are no threats that are made in this mediation. Uh, there are no threats of harm. So I don't think the statute would allow it, which seems kind of crazy, uh, but that's what our statute says. All right, let's go to number three. And then we all will right, have made all, through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> this one's mine to read. So with 30 minutes to go and a strict limit to our mediation of an apartment eviction case based on the landlord's claim of $9,300 in unpaid rent, the tenant says to the mediator in caucus, I won't pay the $7,500 he is now asking for, but I'd like to settle the case and go to $5,500 and if necessary, $6,000 if that will end the matter and allow me to stay put. The judge is waiting impatiently in chambers to adjudicate the case if it does not settle. At the start of the next meeting with the landlord, who to that point has been taking a tough negotiation stance, the mediator says he is willing to go to 6,000. The landlord immediately says okay, and a few minutes later the parties appear before the judge and have their agreement ratified in a court order. As a mediator, are you very comfortable with what the mediator did, somewhat comfortable with what the mediator did, somewhat uncomfortable with what the mediator did, or very uncomfortable with what the mediator did? Uh, I, I won't feel uncomfortable because the what he asked me to do first was to give the 5,500 and if he necessary, it was 1,000. So I would never start the betting from the 6,000. I would, you know, that's not what he, he had asked me to do. Okay, anyone else? I, I guess, yeah, I guess I would have asked the defendant to make the proposal himself rather than a mediator reporting it. Any other thoughts? So I want to ask Deborah, would you be somewhat uncomfortable or very uncomfortable? Because that's what C and D are. Well, I, I would not have done that. And if I felt like he wouldn't take the 5,500, I would have tell the defendant when he told me 5,000, said, you know what? I don't think it's going to fly. If you want me to tell you, I tell you, but it might not be. But I would not, I, I personally, I would not have I if he, the person asked me in caucus to offer an X amount, that's the amount I'm going to start with because that's what we discussed. And I'm being truthful to that. Right. He didn't so ask me to go and, you know. That sounds very uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. And Ken, maybe you're the same way. I think but it does point the out the difference, though, between um, if you tend to bring your parties back together or if you tend to deliver those offers between, you know, yourself, between bring them back together or deliver the, you know, the offer for the parties. So it definitely can come up in different ways, but it also just brings up different mediation approaches, you know. Is it something where you want to bring your parties back together? Or is it something that you want to continue to talk about separately? Any other given thoughts the on this? Well, the part that I given the given the difficulty of caucusing with telephonic, so bringing a party in and out is not very efficient. So, like I said, I would have had the defendant, if that's who it is, um, make the offer and start the negotiation face-to-face -face or telephone-to-telephone. 
Deborah, did you have a comment? Well, too? and even if I, yeah, if I had done separately, and I come back to the person, oh, he took the six thousand, and he said, oh, he didn't take the five thousand five hundred. What I'm gonna say? Oh, I didn't offer that. I'm gonna have to be honest that I didn't. So I don't wanna also break that trust. And if you were in front of the person, uh, the person would be upset at me. Wow, I asked you to offer five thousand five hundred. Why did you jump to six thousand? So, you know that that I feel. But I agree with Ken too as well. When we come back out of the caucus, they have the tendency to ask the participants to put the offer down unless they're very emotionally charged. But if not, I usually ask them to to put that offer. Uh, you know, if they don't want me to do. It. That's definitely a good point too, but not only, you know, how do you feel as the mediator, but then you have to go back and the other person might question, like, how did we get to that number as well? Yeah. And as an aside, uh, I have a, I have a, a video of a mediation that I showed to my uh, law students where this very scenario happens. Somebody says, you know, give them this. And if they don't take it, then go to that. And of course they take, they, the mediator starts at the 6,000 number instead of the 5,500. And the person says exactly what Deborah said. So what'd they say about 55? They, they say no. And it's just kind of like, um, it's awkward. It's, you know, so definitely not good practice to do that. We only have a few minutes left. We have other scenarios, but I'm wondering if anybody has any questions. Uh, we didn't do scenario four. <laughs> four, did we? No, we have more scenarios. We didn't finish all the scenarios. Just being conscious of time and making sure that we allow time for questions if there are any. Yeah, we came up with scenario four and then the extra credit scenarios uh, from the PowerPoints just in case we went through them too quickly. Um, we ended the last program with the we had the those three left over, um, but you know this is a good question on four. So let's put it out there in our last two minutes, in the last minute and a half. You go in for your debt collection case, and the uh, debt collection attorney says, "Oh, hey, Jason, great to have you as the mediator. It's been a while. How you doing? What do you do then?" Three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. Well, this is this is a tough situation, right? Because you got to be impartial, and you want to disclose any potential uh, relationships that you have uh, with individuals. And so, you know, the the thing to do is just to say that this person, you know, you got to you got to come clean. Um, so there are some debt collection attorneys uh, who come to my class and present to my students. And I won't do cases with them. I, I just I won't if they come come in front of me. Um, and uh, in this one, this can happen to any of us at any time if we do regular mediations. And the thing is to say is just that this person is a repeat player, and I know them just from doing these mediations over time, being clear about that, uh, and then being clear that you have no outside contact with this individual, and then ask them if they're comfortable with you going forward. And if they say no, then we've got a new place on the form to put that down. So that can be rescheduled. Well, and it would seem to me that if, if you were to tell that attorney, um, we're going to have to reschedule this with a different mediator, uh, that maybe they'll get the hint after that happening once or twice for not to do that again, you would hope. Yeah. Yeah, and there is an ABA um, uh, mediation ethics advisory opinion that says that if you do repeat mediations with uh, one lawyer or one party, that you just need to disclose that. You don't have to do anything more than just say, you know, I've done, you know, maybe five or ten mediations um, with this person in debt collection matters, and that's how we know each other. 
and then leave it at that. Because I mean, sometimes folks on the phone, they get pretty chatty at the end, you know, oh, anybody have vacation plans? And then, you know, everybody's off to the races, so. So yes, and I think this this brings up even on the telephone that this may happen to you that you'll have a conversation and then you don't know that somebody else is on the line and they've been waiting for a while. So I think it's just good practice to just be upfront. You know, we you know have repeat players. We run into people from time to time. I mean, and just be honest about it. And with that, Charles, do you want to wrap us up? Yes, uh, and everyone just uh, read the extra credit slide. Um, it's a great uh, hint on writing up agreements. And again, I, I really do want to thank our three presenters. Uh, and uh, it, um, thank you for being willing to come back. I, I know that this will be popular on YouTube and uh, as a podcast, I'll get that information out to everyone. Again, your CoJet certificate is the last page. Uh, thank you again so much, and um, everyone have a safe summer, and uh, uh, stay safe and healthy. Thank you.